Hello, everybody. Bonjour, Anine. How are you? Come on, how are you? <laughs> it's always exciting to hear a talk. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a great night. <laughs> Um, I want to acknowledge that we are on the territory of the Anishinaabe, specifically the Mississaugas of New Credit um, here in Toronto. We are also on the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty, which is between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe. And this is a treaty that marks out um, the boundaries beyond Toronto, actually, as land that we share and for hunting and fishing, um, in, the, in the spirit of don't eat more than the land can handle or more than other people need. So make sure that there's something there for everybody that needs to feed off this land. Um, those treaties are really old and really new and they're renewed all the time through ceremony and through the work that our communities do together. So I want to acknowledge that. I also want to acknowledge that this also was the territory of the Huron-Wendat, and Toronto is actually uh, a Huron word, a Wendat word, um, said exactly like that, Toronto. Um, and that word spread all the way to um, Lake Simcoe area, and it marked out all the territories where we had fishing weirs, where um, fishing happened, and it was Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee and Huron trading territory, um, and we all kind of partook of um, these fishing weirs. So it's interesting to think about um, the boundaries of a city from an indigenous perspective. We have to think about those boundaries from the perspective of water and how our communities were linked through water and all of these kinds of lands became uh, territories that we met on. And it continues to be that. There are over 90,000 indigenous people in Toronto today. and I. <laughs> and I want to honor each and every nation that lives here now and every nation that has come and how we're still sharing this land. For those of you who don't know Wanda, this is Wanda Nanabush. She is the <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's me. Um, she is the inaugural curator of Indigenous Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. My name is Georgiana Uliaric. I am the Frederick S. Eaton Curator of Canadian Art. This is an incredibly special occasion for us because it is the very first public event that we are holding as the new Indigenous and Canadian Art Department at the Art Gallery of Ontario. <laughs> And we could not be any more thrilled to have Inuk scholar Heather Egloliorte give the lecture tonight. It is absolutely so fitting. The MacReady Lecture is a lecture that's, uh, this is the 21st MacReady Lecture of Canadian Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Uh, Philip MacReady was a dealer who was well-respected and well-loved uh, mid-20th mid century. And in 1981, when he passed away, friends gathered together and they created a fund to be able to have a lecture in his honor every other year. And the really key thing was that it was to offer original research in Canadian art. 
Dr. Heather Goyorte is the very first Inuk scholar to deliver the McCready Lecture, so we are incredibly honored to welcome her here tonight. <laughs> Before she comes up, I would like to read to you her rather intensive and impressive um, list of accomplishments. Dr. Heather Gloriorte is an Inuk scholar and independent curator who holds a university research chair in indigenous art history and community engagement at Concordia University, where she is an assistant professor in the Department of Art History. Heather has published extensively on Inuit and other indigenous arts and in exhibition catalogs such as Earthlings, which is actually going to be launched exactly a week from today here at the AGO. Um, yay! So come back exactly I'm, a week I'm just from now. The dancer and the, the sign language over here. Um, Inuit Art, the Barroso Collection in 2016, and also the AGO's Inuit Modern in 2012 in book chapters such as Negotiations in a Vacant Lot, Studying the Visual in Canada, Manifestations, New Native Art Criticism, and Curating Difficult Knowledge, as well as in academic journals such as Public, ArtLink, Topia, Art Journal, and RACAR. Heather has been an independent curator since 2005. In 2012, she co-curated the world's first circumpolar one-night-only festival, Inuit Blanche, she curated the reinstallation of the permanent collection of Inuit art at Musée National des Beaux-Arts du Québec, Ilipunga, and launched a national touring exhibition, Sakyayuk, Art and Craft from Nunatyavut, on tour through 2019. Alongside a team of emerging Inuit curators, she has recently been named the guest curator of the inaugural exhibitions of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, New Inuit Art Center, opening in 2020. Heather is also the co-director of the Initiative for Indigenous Futures Cluster in the Milieu Institute for Arts, Culture, and Technology with Professor Jason Edward Lewis. She serves on the faculty council of Otsego Institute for Native American Art History at the Fenimore Art Museum in Cooperstown, New York, the board of directors for North America's largest indigenous art historical association, the Native North American Art Asso Studies Association, and on the board of directors for the Inuit Art Foundation, whose head offices are located here in Toronto. And Wanda would also like to make some remarks. <laughs> <laughs> I've known Heather for 13 years, so I just wanted to offer you a bit of Deb Wayman, some truth, some heart knowledge about Heather, and that's um, she's always uh, works with integrity. She always dives deep. She doesn't get lost um, on her way. She always maintains the the beauty and integrity and uh, importance of the place she's working on and in and with. Um, including her home community, and she's done a lot for the artists there. Um, but also, when you're hanging out with her, she's always the person who will um, drive you to work harder, think harder. Um, she will find the crack in what you're doing and really like push you to do better. And I've always appreciated that about you and being able to have those intellectual conversations um, that are also still filled with heart and why we do the work we do. So I'm totally honored to invite you to this stage.
I thought Wanda was going to say that I'm the person who makes everyone stay out later. So <laughs> thank you, Wanda. That too. <laughs> uh, good evening, Ulakut. Um, I, I just want to begin by thanking you, Wanda and Georgiana, and also um, Kathleen and Annie and everyone who has brought me here to the AGO. It's a, it's a great honor to speak at the McCready Lecture. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful and so honored to be here. Today I want to share with you some of my uh, recent research, and I'm going to focus on two interrelated curatorial projects that I've recently developed. I think you might have said 2012. They were, all those shows were done in 2016, actually, so just last year. Uh, the first is the permanent exhibition Ilipunga, I have learned from the Brousseau Collection of Inuit Art, uh, which opened at the Musée National de Beaux-Arts Quebec in June of 2016. The second is Sakiayuk, Art and Craft from Nunatsiavut, which opened later in the fall of 2016 on October 8th. Both projects were begun long before their opening dates, and together are perhaps the most complex and engaged projects I have ever undertaken, including multiple institutions, locations, artists, elders, and other knowledge keepers and stakeholders. But before I begin, I just want to situate myself a little bit. Um, actually, that very first slide, that's my, my brother Mark's painting that is in the background of that, but I'm about to click off it, so here we go. <laughs> so um, I am from, uh, this, is, this is Labrador. <laughs> You'll see it again later. You'll see it again later. Uh, this is uh, a map of Labrador. It's on the other side of Quebec, of course. Um, not everyone knows that. <laughs> and uh, the area that is in green, gold, and red is now the Labrador Inuit settlement area called Nunatsiavut. We were the last Inuit region in Canada to um, settle our land claims, but we're the first to become self-governing, and we just celebrated our, our 10th birthday in December. Thank you. <laughs> the, at the last conference, I actually said it on our, I was at a conference on our birthday, and I made the audience sing, but I won't, I won't make you sing as well. Um, so Labrador, of course, is uh, part of the Inuit circumpolar world, uh, which circles the top of the globe and um, involves many peoples in what is today Greenland, the U.S., uh, and Siberia, as well as Canada. You can see Nanatsivit on the, the edge of the circle there. We are the most southerly Inuit population today. And within Canada, we are the smallest territorial region. We're on the uh, east coast, from west to east. It's the Nuve'alawit settlement region. Um, they have a regional corporation form of government. Nunavut, which of course is a territory that was formed in 1999. Uh, Nunavik, which is the area of Arctic Quebec, shares its, shares its territory with James Bay and uh, Nunatsiavut. So I grew up in a little town uh, called, I'll just go back for a second, called Happy Valley Goose Bay, which is in that uh, little dip. Did, is someone here from Goose Bay? Anyway. <laughs> Hey! <laughs> Who knew? Uh, so I'm from uh, Goose Bay. Goose Bay is actually just outside of the settlement region, as is Northwest River. But those are those, along with Cartwright, are communities that have large uh, Inuit populations as well as Inu and settlers. And then the communities of Nain, Hopedale, Postbomakovic, and Riglet are inside of Nunatsiavut. And my father is from Hopedale. Uh, my grandmother is from Hopedale. My grandfather is from Nain. And on my mother's side, I am a Newfoundlander and uh, their family is from, they, I actually grew up in Labrador and went to high school in Cornerbrook, and my uh, grandparents on that side are from a town called Greenspond, which is actually also a sealing and fishing community, so I have sealers and fishers on both sides. So today I want to, so that's me. Uh, so it's, today I want to talk about uh, these two projects that I've set up. Um, on the, is it the left for you as well? Yes, okay, so on the left-hand side is Ilipunga, and on the right-hand side is Sakiayuk. 
These projects are, from a museological perspective, quite different. Ilipunga is a permanent exhibition of a museum collection featuring one practice sculpture with works collected by a single donor and installed in a site specifically built to house and display this collection. Sakiayuk, in contrast, is a four-year touring exhibition brought together by loans from numerous public and private lenders, including works of a wide variety of mediums and artistic practices, which has taken on a slightly different appearance in each new installation as it travels across the country. Uh, opened at the rooms, which is what's depicted here. Uh, this summer it was at the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia. In a couple of months it's going to be at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, and then it's going to the Mackenzie, and then we have to give everything back. Um, the exhibitions have different audiences, intents, and purposes. They fulfill different aims and cover different histories and geographical areas. And yet, I believe they bear a com comparison for what they do have in common. Both exhibitions seek to meaningfully address some gaps that persist throughout our modern and contemporary Inuit art history. Both aim to reveal something new about Inuit art that is yet to be fully realized in the public. And significantly, both exhibitions seek to accomplish these goals by centering Inuit knowledge, artists, and communities. I'll begin with Ilipunga by first describing the challenges that the project presented and how I feel this work addresses this challenge uh, and maybe even some exciting possibilities in Inuit curatorial practice. Although there exists a vast literature on Inuit art in Canada, including hundreds of exhibition catalogs and scholarly texts, edited volumes, journal articles, numerous publications in the popular media as well. A very small percentage of this has been produced by Inuit to date. Despite the critical and commercial success of Inuit art, which has flourished since the beginning of the modern Inuit art movement in the mid 20th century into an internationally recognized art form and multi-million dollar industry, the research, study, dissemination of Inuit art has largely been the work of Halana scholars, curators, critics, and museum staff. You may have heard the word Halana before. It's the Inuit word for white people. Uh, you might not know that it doesn't actually refer to skin color. Um, Minnie Adla Friedman has written, and I've, I've heard it in other contexts, that uh, how, the first part of Halana Hala means eyebrow in some dialects, and so it's believed that the term means the people with the beautiful eyebrows, because Inuit are, um, they don't have very much body hair, and so I think when they first encountered uh, European explorers, they were surprised by, you know, like bushy arm hair and, and eyebrows and so on. So it's the people with the beautiful eyebrows. Um, few Inuit authors, <laughs> that's what it means, it's, it's, so we believe. Few Inuit authors have ever been published in art or historical texts as curators or scholars, although of course many Inuit artists have been involved in exhibitions through interviews, quotations, artist statements, and so on. Uh, and there are a few early examples in arts writing, including such authors as Alatu Ipili, the political cartoonist and graphic artist who contributed uh, a really foundational article called The Colonization of the Arctic in Gerald McMaster's Groundbreaking Reservation X in 1998. Uh, filmmaker Zacharias Kunak, who through his writing and other interviews has contributed um, much to our understanding of Inuit aesthetics. Minnie Adler Freeman, the author who contributed to Inuit Women Artists, Voices from Cape Dorset, an exhibition catalog that was produced in 2006. And of course, other Inuit have recently contributed to um, catalogs and exhibition texts in more recent years. Yet I am, as Georgiana said, uh, the only Inuk in Canada to currently hold a PhD in art history, one of only two or three Inuit to ever teach an Inuit art class at the university level, and one of a, just a handful of curators from the, of circumpolar art from our country to date. 
Artists such as Barry Pottle and Heather Campbell have occasionally held curatorial positions in art institutions. Uh, Anna Hudson and Lakalu Williamson Bathory co-curated an exhibition here at the AGO about a decade ago. And excitingly, I think I have a slide. Oh, I do. <laughs> Is that the right slide? Yes. Uh, excitingly, I just saw last week that a team of Inuit artists are now currently collaborating on an exhibition here again. So I will come back and check that out when that opens. Um, however, Oh, and there are also, of course, a number of new Inuit government arts officers. So arts officers who work for Inuit in Nunavut, Nunatsivut, uh, Nunavik, and the, the Northwest Territories. And yet, to the best of my knowledge, there is yet to be a single full-time Inuit museum employee at any of our major national or provincial institutions, and few have ever been employed in the many Inuit and Indigenous private galleries, auction houses, or as freelance authors, research assistants, critics, or film exhibition reviewers. One impact of this, of course, is that uh, Inuit art, including everything from archaeological findings right up to the present day, has been interpreted almost entirely by Halana. It's changing, of course. But despite the rich literature that has been written, often by those who have worked closely with Inuit over the first decades of the modern era and right up to today, the scholarship presented still represents a deep imbalance between who is doing the writing and who is being written about. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this lack of Inuit scholars has meant that Inuit perspectives and knowledge have been conspicuously absent from the research and writing on Inuit art as well. Now before I get too far into this presentation on new directions in my own work, I want to note that this work does not belong to me alone, but is shared with and informed by all of the other Inuit that I have been working on and developing this with. It is especially important to add the caveat that although I was raised in Labrador and still spend a considerable amount of my time there and in other parts of the Arctic with Inuit, I am an Inuktitut learner. And so there is knowledge through language that I do not yet have access to and I may never. It's, it's a very dense and complicated language. It is in fact my hope that this work will be taken up by and refined by other Inuit curators and art historians who will be fluent Inuktitut speakers because I see that they're uh, is so much more potential. I, I feel like what I'm doing right now is very rudimentary, and my hope is that it's going to be picked up and pushed even further by new Inuit voices. So uh, back to Ilipunga. I keep forgetting I can see it right here. I need to, I'm like, what is it? Uh, okay. Um, on June 25th, 2016, the Pierre Lassonde Pavilion of the Musée National de Beaux-Arts of, of Quebec opened to the public. This decidedly new contemporary expansion of stacked glass rectangles increased the museum space by 90%, adding three levels of galleries, a grand hall, a new auditorium, a restaurant, a courtyard, and a shop. On the very front half, facing, uh, on the top floor facing north, is the Brousseau Inuit Art Collection. That's, that's it, you can see it uh, kind of jutting out over the street, that, that whole big space is the Inuit Art Collection. In 2013, I was hired by the museum to develop a new permanent exhibition by drawing on the museum's collections of over 2,100 works of Inuit art, the vast majority of which was donated by one collector, Raymond, Raymond Brousseau, who acquired the works over more than half a century. He was also a gallerist and he had a private collection. The museum's first exhibition of this collection was created by Brousseau and his wife Lise, an exhibition designer, and had been on display in the original M.M. Back building between 2006 and 2013. In fact, Lise had designed that exhibition. 
I was invited to bring a new Inuit perspective to the presentation of what was largely a modern Inuit art collection. And by that I mean uh, formed in the early years, 1948, and up until, you know, through the 70s and 80s, but largely in that really formative period for Inuit art. Although the collection contains a few works from nearly every common 20th century media, baskets, drawings, prints, ceramics, and so on, the vast majority of the works in, in the Brousseau collection, and by far the greatest strength of the collection, is the sculptural works. Working with that strength, I decided to make the exhibition a sculptural one, and to activate the presentation of these works with video with, throughout the gallery space. The challenge was not in selecting compelling works for display, Brousseau has a critical eye for Inuit sculpture and amassed a really important collection, one that had already been on display for a decade. And so the challenge was in taking an, that existing collection, which had been um, so frequently visited in Quebec, and saying something novel and meaningful about mid to late century Nunavut and Nunavik sculpture, which is of course the area of Inuit art already most studied, exhibited, and discussed in Inuit scholarship. To do so, I proposed a new possible direction for interpreting Inuit art history from an emic perspective, taking Inuit Khaimiyandakangit as the basis for understanding Inuit artistic productions throughout our long history and in the present. While the Inuktitu phrase is often simply translated as Inuit traditional knowledge, it can be more accurately understood to encompass the complex matrix of Inuit environmental knowledge, societal values, cosmology, worldviews, and language. The term Inuit Khaimiyandakangit comes from the verb Khaima, to know, referring to that which Inuit have always known to be true, which would of course encompass uh, your worldviews, your, your society, your ecology, and everything. While the tenets of IQ, as it is commonly referred to, have always existed in Inuit society, the widespread adoption of the overarching term is itself something new. In 1999, when Nunavut separated from the Northwest Territories to become Canada's largest territory, the territorial government chose to formally embed Inuit values, principles, and knowledge into the governance structures of Inuit regions and communities, using the language of IQ to do so. The implementation of IQ by the government of Nunavut and other organizations makes the statement that Inuit and Kangit continues to be relevant to contemporary Inuit life and is a living knowledge. At the center of this philosophy is respect, respect for relationships, the relationship with the land, between family and community members regarding their responsibilities to each other, our ecologies, and the responsibility to also pass that knowledge on to future generations. This philosophy, when applied to the arts, underscores that for Inuit, the way to respect our ancestors is to maintain our living traditional knowledge and to be resourceful and creative as they had to be. In this way, the work of Inuit artists is to both constantly seek to deepen their knowledge of long-standing creative practices, but at the same time to continuously innovate to ensure that these practices thrive and participate in living knowledge. Ingenuity is our tradition. The title of the exhibition, Ilipunga, given to me by Elder Pita Ernick, reflects this intergenerational transmission of knowledge. It means I have learned. IQ uh, has eight basic principles that guide Inuit ontologies and social relations in the Arctic. Uh, relations between Arctic residents, between people, animals, and non-human entities. They are also readily observed in the arts. These concepts guide the way Inuit, in which Inuit artists train and develop, the acquisition of knowledge by learning from and observing other Inuit, sharing knowledge, uh, consensus building, collective decision making, focusing on benefiting, benefiting the community above the individual. 
For collective art organizations like Pangerton Tapestry Studio, and I've done this thing where I put a whole bunch of text up on the screen and now I'm gonna skip past it. <laughs> um, weavers base their designs on drawings from named local artists. So one artist, artists, um, named artists who may or may not be currently working at the studio, artists that are respected within the tradition of printmaking that is also very rich in Pang. Um, and so artists collectively select a design by a named individual artist and then collaborate to produce massive elaborate tapestries that lend a quote, sense of pride as well as bringing economic benefits to the community while telling and preserving its stories for future generations. That's from uh, the, the, the center's website. And I just found out today that it's actually one of only three weaving um, centers in the world. My friend Alyssa from the New Art Foundation was like, did you know? Um, cooperatives across the Arctic thus exemplify the principle of working together for a common good. And this is underscored by the concept of serving, which is crucial to understanding how uh, something like success would be measured in Inuit communities as opposed to perhaps in the Western world. Contributions to the common good are considered the highest form of leadership, as well as the measure of achievement, maturity, and wisdom. Inuit recognize and appreciate the contributions of iconic artists such as Johnny Anukpuk and Pablo Pudlat and Knoyuak Ashabak, all in the collections here, who participated in the early modern art movement but were also trailblazers to involve other Inuit artists in that movement, clearing a path for success and prosperity in their communities. The principle that sustains community art collectives is the same value that leads Inuit hunters to distribute the results of a caribou hunt to all the elders in town first, uh, as reflected in works such as this beautiful work by, uh, that is here in the collection by David Rubin Piktukin, Division of Meat. In this work, the artist distinctly illustrates the importance of this distribution with this minimalist sculpture. Another value that can be extrapolated to the arts, closely related to the previous tenant, is being resourceful and inventive to solve problems. The ability to adapt, innovate, repurpose, creative fi creatively find solutions to everyday problems is one of the most significant cultural traits of the Inuit, who are known for their ingenious resourcefulness in the Arctic, as in the invention of the igloo or the kayak, but in lots of other very common everyday ways today. Um, Inuit still apply this principle of extreme resourcefulness to their daily lives, making use of everything that is available to them. And so they have to, because the resources in the Arctic are so very costly and um, hard to find that you make use and remake use of everything you have. Being resourceful in the 21st century means continuing to make the most of what is available in the Arctic, such as applying Inuit knowledge to the quarrying of stone or harvesting of resources as depicted in works like, I love this piece, Mike Massey's mixed media sculpture, carved from limestone, he gathers limestone to carve, portrait of the artist. In this self-portrait, the artist and his material are one and the same. The artist shows himself both in the act of gathering materials from the land and being himself of the land. I imagine you can see how this relates to the value of environmental stewardship as well, which emphasizes the responsibility of Inuit to be respectful of their limited resources and to protect the land and its inhabitants. And this is not unlike the dish with one spoon um, wampum, of course. And I know you've also heard this before about Inuit, how, um, you know, that kind of adage about how indigenous peoples don't hunt more that they, uh, don't hunt what they can't use and, and use every part of an animal. And uh, I was, when I was writing this last week, I was thinking about my friend Inuk Barbie. She's a, um, Barb is a uh, jewelry designer, Inuk Barbie is her company name, and she made these really gorgeous tulagak earrings. They're um, like raven's feet earrings, 
And so everyone on Facebook was like, can I order a pear? Can I order a pear? And she said, well, we don't eat ravens, so <laughs> I need to find another dead raven, and then you can have a pair of earrings. <laughs> she said, I'm never going to kill a raven to make a pair of earrings, is basically what she said. Um, I've got to get on a wait list or something, I think. Manasi Akpaliakpik's massive and elaborate whalebone sculpture, tribute to animals, included in Ilipunga, with its many shifting, morphing, interrelated representations of animals from the sky, uh, sea, and land, to which a central figure is bound, is a meaningful tribute to this societal value. Being resourceful has always meant creating works from the Arctic environment, but it's also suggested that being resourceful could be, viewed, could be uh, is present, this value is present in works that use found objects like recycled beer boxes and used bingo cards, as found in this satirical work by Jesse Tunglick, Nunavais Flag. This is supposed to be the part of a series that I hope that he eventually goes all the way through. In Ilipunga, these eight principles of IQ are borne out across a number of inter interconnected themes which represent uh, and center on reciprocal respect, values, knowledge, and history. In the exhibition, we also acknowledge that there have been significant disruptions to the intergenerational transmission of IQ, not coincidentally occurring within the same period of the modern art movement that was born across the Arctic. Christianity, colonialism, and rapid modernization brought about huge changes in the Arctic, in some places in as little as four to five decades, um, or as Elder Peter Ernick has described it, from the igloo to the microwave in half a century. I won't get into the entire history of Arctic colonialism here. I feel like I am always getting into the entire history of Arctic colonialism, and I, I, uh, I had way too much text today, and I was just like, no, 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 no. Um, I've dealt with it at length elsewhere, and if you're really curious about the relationship of this history to the arts, you can pick up a copy of Inuit Modern, <laughs> um, the AGO's text. So for now, just please consider the words of Zebedee Nungyak, who has described the historical, and in some places, current history as, quote, colonialism on steroids. In Ilipunga, I didn't know if anybody would laugh at that or not. It's like, it's really serious, but it's kind of funny as well. Um, in Ilipunga, the sculptures ranging from the miniature to the monumental are grouped together on several levels of, large, of a large central display structure, rather than in individual cases, creating relationships between works that vary depending on the direction you choose to navigate through the display. There is no didactic path or chronology. Rather, the sculptures are organized to relate to each other in a holistic fashion. For example, the section on cultural resurgence in the arts, which features um, carvings of Inuit throat singers, dancers, and storytellers, flow, uh, either flows into or out from a section on changes in the Arctic, which could provide the viewer with insights into where we have come from and where we are going or it flows into or out from a section on oral history. This section also flows into or out from uh, oral history, specifically on Angatuti, which is, um, uh, Angakuti, which are like shamans, basically, uh, which flows into or out from sections on transformations and pre-Christian sp spirituality, but that section is across from the one on the introduction of Christianity to the Arctic. So relationships are made as you move through the exhibition. In this way, your path through the exhibition shapes how you come to understand the complexity and interrelatedness of Inuit knowledge, history, and culture. The works are further contextualized by a series of short videos on multimedia players which line the outer walls of the gallery. Where do I go? Okay, sorry, I'm just like clicking ahead.
think we're getting a video, but I'll tell you. Um, oh, no, hold on. One more. There we go. Next one is a video. <laughs> the works are further contextualized by a series of short videos on multimedia players, which line the outside walls of the gallery space, featuring a group of Inuit, not necessarily all artists, who share their knowledge of ongoing practices um, across the visual arts, but also clothing production, throat singing, uh, kekinit, and other cultural practices that were threatened during colonization, but which are now experiencing a resurgence. The videos feature prominent Inuit artists and other knowledge keepers, including uh, Peter Ernick, who I've already mentioned, throat singer and musician Beatrice Deer, cultural consultant Evie Mark, sculptor David Rubin Piktukin, uh, filmmaker Alethea Arnakokbero, sculptor Kuzi Curley, and clothing designer Victoria Ukpik, and include Inuktitut text and syllabic translations by Harriet Keliutuk and Takralik Partridge. The inclusion of these short videos, which relate to both specific works and the overall themes of the exhibition, highlight areas of Inuit knowledge, history, and culture, while also providing the visitor with new ways of looking at this, these works and understanding how Inuit view their own artistic production. Their multivocal inclusion works to insert more Inuit voices into our art history and indicates a path forward in the discourse on Inuit art. And I'd like to uh, show a clip here before moving on to the latter half of my talk, as this short video speaks to IAQ and the project very succinctly. I think all the tattoos, uh, the traditional dunit they're called, is, um, and in my region, the word dunit specifically referred to the woman's tattoos. Um, the word for tattoos in general is kakinit but Dunneet refers to the women's tattoos. And I think all of the Dunneet really honor womanhood in general. But motherhood tattoos specifically, I, I thought were such a beautiful concept and that the thighs were tattooed. And uh, you know, I, I saw this in uh, archival research, but I also heard it directly from several elders that the thighs were tattooed in preparation for childbirth so that the first thing a newborn sees is a thing of beauty. The tattoos I have on my chest here um, that go around the shoulders <coughs> and the back um, are actually designed by Selina Kallu. She designed this based on traditional tattoos because the, the breasts had traditional tattoos as well. That was a traditional placement. But she made it go all the way around the body to trace the shape of the amauti, the baby-carrying uh, parka for women. And um, I thought that was such a beautiful idea as well to celebrate motherhood. And uh, I was really excited to get mine in, in preparation for being a mother as well. And then um, the first time I got to carry my son in an amauti <laughs> after wanting to be a mother for so long, it was wonderful, yeah. This work and other exhibitions by other curators and uh, across the country as well as internationally that seek to bring more diverse Inuit voices into gallery spaces is not a new curatorial strategy or even particularly technologically innovative. I think iPads have been in exhibitions for at least 10 years now. Um, but as all of the interviews in our uh, piece are Inuk to Inuk, I hope that we have produced something that goes beyond uh, kind of an ethnographic or an introductory sort of an interview. And I, I feel like in the works it comes through that there's something that's being shared between uh, myself and, and the speakers. In the process, I hope that we are encouraging new, closer looking at Inuit sculptures from the 20th century that allows us to think in more holistic and expansive ways alongside or 
even past some frameworks of Inuit art as ethnographic object, nationalist symbol, modernist sculpture, or even individual genius, adding depth to our existing insights about the relevance and meaning of Inuit art in our Canadian collections. I think we need to um, continue to be expanding and looking back at these things and not uh, allowing the interpretation to stay in the past. If I had to characterize the exhibition in one quote, I would cite Palusi uh, Kasadulak of, of, of Inukjuak, who noted in a 1976 interview, oh, whoops, did I lose my quote slide? Oh, no, there it is. It is, I'm sorry, uh, Zoe told me she was gonna do that, and I'm not paying attention. <laughs> it is not only to make money that we carve, nor do we carve make-believe things. What we show in our carvings is the life that we have lived in the past right up to today. We show the truth. We carve the animals because they are important to us for, as food. We carve Inuit figures because in that way we can show ourselves to the world as we were in the past and as we are now. Turning our attention to Sakiayuk now, I also need to begin by framing the circumstances in which this exhibition emerged by calling attention to a different kind of a hidden history. Labrador Inuit have belonged to our beautiful land, called, now called Nanatsiavut, a vast coastal region of the Arctic and subarctic along the Atlantic Ocean for, coast, for countless generations. Our ancestors have long produced skillful, useful, meaningful things essential to our continued existence on this land. Over the last four centuries, as contact with the outside world increased, we also began to produce our clothing, carvings, and other talents for trade with the many Europeans who visited our coast. Um, I don't know what, where I just grabbed this map, but I assume that that is <laughs> historical too. I don't know when. We've had people come into the Labrador coast for over 400 years. Um, over the last four centuries, as contact increased, uh, we began to produce clothing, carvings, and other things with the Europeans. Because of these exchanges, historical Labrador Inuit objects made in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries can be found in relative abundance in museum collections worldwide. Um, actually, Labrador was, up until about the 1920s, by far and away the most collected uh, Inuit group because of the, uh, we had a very rich whale whaling culture, lots of oil. We were lighting street lights throughout Paris and Europe, and uh, very dense fisheries. Of course, we were also facing Greenland as well as Europe. Yet in the recent history of modern Canadian Inuit art, Labrador Inuit, Inuit artists and craftspeople are almost completely absent. Four living generations of artists have witnessed a dramatic time of transition on the Labrador coast. Their stories, memory, and knowledge passed down through generations of Inuit in our region are little known outside of Nunatsiavut. Sakiayuk, meaning to be visible in the Labrador dialect of Inuktitut, presents a critical opportunity to introduce Nunatsiavut artists and craftspeople to the world. Through the work of four generations of artists, elders, trailblazers, firekeepers, and the next generation, this exhibition reveals the vital yet long-hidden history of Nunatsiavut, highlighting the enduring resilience of our artists. The artistry of the, Labrador, of the Labrador Inuit is evident throughout the entire historical record of the region, including the many centuries before European contact. Contemporary visual arts are still rooted in this rich and complex history. Unlike most other Inuit peoples who were geographically isolated until early in the 20th century, the Labrador Inuit uh, experienced more than 400 years of prolonged contact with Haluna. 
whalers, fishermen, explorers, Moravian missionaries, and a succession of French and British, British colonialists exposed them to periods of um, trade, exploitation, evangelization, colonization, and eventually confederation. More recently, Inuit have begun to find their way out of that past, beginning with Inuit political activism in the 1970s and leading to the realization of our self-government in 2005. Yet while encounters between non-Inuit and Anatsevumit have been well documented for uh, many decades, and a number of excellent studies have been published from the related fields in archaeology, anthropology, and ethnohistory, the art historical literature remained scant. Scholarly publications, museum collections, and exhibitions of Inuit art and cult visual culture have been noticeably devoid of Nunatsivik content. Likewise, most uh, seminal texts on Inuit art ignore Labrador almost completely, and, the only, and only a handful of journal articles and catalog essays up until oh, about 2015 um, dealt with Nunatsivumit art in any depth or breadth. The idea that Inuit in Labrador somehow gave up their Inuit when they converted their Inuitness when they converted to the Moravian faith in 1772 is a regrettable but often repeated sentiment in Inuit literature across the humanities and social sciences of the last century. Um, this is a portrait. I, I always think of this as like the, the Inuit Mona Lisa. This is Mikak um, or Kaubik, I think it's Mikak, um, painted in, in situ in Europe in 1772. First Moravian settlement to be successful in Labrador was 1771. And here is, by comparison, this is a photo of a woman named, only named as Hulda from circa 1900, maybe as late as 1920. And so, um, when I see these images side by side, um, knowing that there is a possibly a 150-year gap between them, and yet they were wearing, wearing virtually the same coat. In fact, Hulda's looks like it might be a little bit more complex. Um, it is this kind of thing that uh, that makes me very upset to know how long Inuit, Labrador Inuit, have suffered under this idea that we are somehow less authentic than other Inuit, when um, the contact with Moravians, as we can see, did not was not successful in erasing Inuit culture. The idea that we gave up our Inuit culture when we became Moravians effectively dismisses the, quote, authenticity of the Nunatsiavumian by stating that Labrador Inuit society began to erode immediately upon the establishment of the first missions under a totalitarian evangelization and economic assimilation of the Moravians, um, which I, I believe that visual culture actually points a way out of for us. Again, you can see this another beautiful quote from 1920. And if I was lecturing you all as students, I would point out, um, I, I don't know if you can see it clearly on the screen or not, but the pieces that you see here, the, the white, black, and brown patchwork of caribou skin, uh, sewn with sinew. Uh, does everybody know what sinew is? Can I see a show of hands if you know what sinew is? Many of you do, not everybody. Sinew is, uh, for many Inuit, it is a, you have to, first you have to hunt and kill the caribou. And then, with no metal, uh, and then you need to extract the um, the connective tissue along the back of the caribou spine, and then you get this big piece of um, like kind of like flesh. It is connective tissue, and then you have to strip it into very very fine thread-like pieces about this long, and then you need to use that to sew a garment like this, which most accomplished seamstresses around the world today would find a challenge, I think. So this code's from circa 1920, and I, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that the, the white and the darker strips, that's not inlay, that's not, on, uh, that's not placed on top of it, it's not decoration, those are actually cut pieces that are sewn together painstakingly by hand. 
And I draw your attention to that because there is no practical reason to do this in the Arctic. <laughs> There's no reason why you would cut many, many strips of things and like make lots of places where holes could tear or that wind or water or snow could get in. And so it really is a testament to the fact that for uh, a very, very long time, Inuit women have been making things uh, to the height of aesthetic attractiveness uh, with great innovation uh, and a great demonstration of pride. Somewhat ironically, the main factor that led to the exclusion of Labrador Inuit art from the canon of Inuit and Canadian art history in the 20th century had little to do with the arts themselves. In 1949, the same year that modern Inuit art exploded onto the international art scene following a famously sold out show at the Canadian Handicrafts Guild in Montreal, Newfoundland joined Confederation, but the new province's government refused to submit to any federal jurisdiction over the Aboriginal peoples. Everywhere else in Canada, the existing Indian Act and other legislation made the federal government financially responsible for the delivery of health, education, and social services to the indigenous population. We can argue later about whether or not they fulfilled that promise, but that was something that was a promise. Um, yet when Newfoundland joined Canada, the two governments could not reach an agreement on who would be responsible for the Indian and Inuit populations. That's probably Eskimos back then. Uh, instead, both Newfoundland and Canada decided against extending any federal considerations to the new provinces Inuit, Nunatubut, Mi'kmaq, or Innu nations. And in contrast to the rest of the country, the final version of the Terms of Union did not even mention Aboriginal peoples. And no provisions were made that would compel the Canadian government or the provincial government to accept any kind of responsibility for the provision of social services to Newfoundland and Labrador's indigenous peoples as it did in every other province and territory. This political decision had the unintended effect of making Labrador Inuit artists ineligible to participate in any of the developments that emerged from the federally funded Inuit arts initiatives advanced throughout what is now Nunavut and Nunavik, formerly Northwest Territories and Nunavut. Since 1949, contemporary Inuit art has grown into a rich and varied practice, a respected field of study, and a multi-million dollar industry. Uh, there's a study just came out that said in 2015, Inuit art contributed, including all of it, performance art as well, contributed $87.5 million to the economy. However, Labrador Inuit artists have remained nearly invisible within this history. While a handful of artists have found critical and commercial success on their own in recent decades, the understanding and recognition of Labrador Inuit art on the whole is still deeply lacking. In light of the dramatic advances in the field of Canadian Inuit art over half a century, the near-complete absence of Nunatsevumiat visual culture from exhibitions and collections, as well as from art historical texts, is highly conspicuous. Nunatsevumiat, as I've said, have been considered less, in, uh, less authentic than other Inuit, who lived in more remote Arctic communities with little contact with the outside world. On the coast, our ancestors were not isolated from European settlers, traders, or travelers. They had contact with Norse, Basque, Dutch, Spanish, Greenlandic, French, and English, who visited the coast as whalers, explorers, missionaries, trappers, and traders, government representatives. Instead of viewing this centuries-old history of contact, resistance, and exchange as a fascinating subject worthy of study, which it is, most Inuit art historians of the 20th century dismissed Labrador Inuit as too acculturated. The fact that many had converted to the Moravian faith contributed to this belief, Although by the beginning of the modern Inuit art movement, most Inuit peoples across Canada had already uh, converted to Christianity. 
From the 1960s to the 1980s, the commonly held belief that I've seen in, uh, again and again come up in my research was that Labrador Inuit had been wholly assimilated into Halanak culture if they were thought of at all. For Labrador Inuit artists who have long only wished to be recognized as worthy of the same interest and attention as their uh, cousins across the Arctic, the perception of a separation between the authentic Inuit of 1950s Northwest Territories as they were imagined and the inauthentic Inuit of Labrador in the same time period has been an almost insurmountable barrier to success. When the Canadian and Newfoundland governments decided not to recognize the indigenous peoples of the province, this lack of inclusion and federal recognition led many of us to believe that there, led many to believe that there were no Inuit in Labrador at all. And without the funding to travel or communicate with the rest of the country, it was impossible for Labrador Inuit to contradict this belief themselves. It wasn't until the late 1980s that the first exploratory meetings between Labrador Inuit and staff from the federal government, oh, go forward, uh, between Labrador Inuit and staff from the federal government's Inuit Arts section took place. During this meeting, from which curator Ingo Hessel traveled to Labrador, the Inuit Arts Section offered to sponsor a survey of Labrador Inuit artists, and they hired another artist, Dinah Anderson, to travel to each community along the Labrador coast and to interview Inuit artists and craftspeople. Anderson completed approximately 140 interviews with artists who self-identified during that trip, making this the first historic attempt to survey Inuit art in Labrador. The survey, which is just, it just exists as like photocopies in Labrador, it's crazy, it needs to be uh, better archived. Um, the survey revealed that while our artistic traditions continue to thrive under the preservation of our elders and local artists, the major problems facing most Labrador Inuit artists was very low level earnings, resulting in part from a limited market, which of course resulted in part from people not knowing about them outside of Labrador. The survey also revealed shortages of both necessary materials and adequate facilities in which artists could work. For example, houses on the coast tended to be, and still are, too small to allow for, for example, indoor carving space. Um, many lacked basements, and many also lacked running water. So carving could only be done outside in the warm months. And back then, there was a lot less warm months than there are now. Um, as Dinah Anderson stated at the time, for a young person interested in pursuing the arts on their own, it is next to impossible, not to mention discouraging. Maria Mullen, then head of the Inuit Arts Section for the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs, also commented in Inuit Art Quarterly, it is evident that artists in Labrador have not received a fraction of the attention given to Northwest Territories and Quebec artists, and the Inuit Arts Section is eager to rectify this imbalance. Compounding this, difficult, this ongoing difficult situation, and again because of the, uh, this federal government decision uh, around confederation, Inuit artisans and craftspeople in Labrador were not even allowed to use the ubiquitous igloo tag to authenticate their works as real Inuit art until 1990. Upon finally being granted this privilege, sculptor Gilbert Hay, who has been uh, very politically active in his community since the 1970s, remarked dryly in an Inuit Art Quarterly <laughs> interview at, quote, after 20 years of struggling on my own to make it as an artist, the government of Canada finally recognizes me as a genuine Inuk. Um, I am very happy to say that the Igloo Tag program has recently been retaken up by the Inuit Art Foundation, and they are, I think that the, uh, the uh, I know that the person who is in charge of it is actually a Labrador Inuk, so I think that we're probably going to be uh, successful in the future with that. For Labrador Inuit artists whose wish is to be recognized as being as worthy of attention as their peers elsewhere, oh wait, that's the same as before. 
When, in the rest of Canada, around the turn of the century, Inuit art was becoming, no, am I reading the wrong page? Mm. No. Labrador Inuit have never had uh, any of the things that have made Inuit art what it is today, why you're all here tonight, why people love Inuit art so much, and that is because and I hope that it helps you appreciate how important the cooperative system and the networks that Inuit artists have in the North and South, because in the absence of these kind of supports, Inuit art in Labrador could not get started. And in my research, I would frequently come across examples of arts organizations starting up. They get a little grant, they work entirely on volunteers, they do great things, and then it kind of implodes on itself. Because, you know, volunteer-funded arts organizations do not have a very long shelf life. Without Helena arts instructors, government-funded print workshops, cooperatives, seed funding, federal funding, and all the other concerted efforts that were underway in the Arctic, uh, Labrador Inuit could not really get out of where they were. So while many individual artists and craftspeople from the territory have had their talent and skills recognized, on the whole, Labrador Inuit artists have not yet gained the recognition or acknowledgement of their work outside of Labrador. And the outside world has not yet had an opportunity or a privilege to learn about Nunatsivut art. So when I was in a position to do something about this situation, my main goal was to introduce uh, Nunatsivut arts and visual culture into a critical conversation and the global interest on Inuit art. As you can imagine, given the lack of writing on Inuit art, consultation or community collaboration, or consultation and community collaboration has been the best practice for community-based research. And in many ways, the success of my project depended entirely on the contributions of artists, elders, and other informed community members whose knowledge of family and community practices, materials and techniques, and art historical traditions have long filled critical voids in the existing literature. It did not begin as an exhibition project. It was, in fact, a research and development project funded by the Mobilizing Inuit Cultural Heritage Shirk Partnership Grant, which is also working on the exhibition that's happening here. Um, and when I started out uh, on that grant, I was told by Anna that I had the freedom to determine with the community uh, what we wanted to do rather than for the community. We took that responsibility very seriously. And we went to, oh, sorry, seven, I was like, what was I going to say about ivories? Oh, they were really important in the 1920s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I skipped a slide. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit off the cuff here for the last couple of minutes of my presentation. 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, so we went to, there's seven communities, five that are inside of the Nazi territory to Happy Valley Goose Bay and Northwest River in what's called the Lake Melville region. And we started doing consultation and we went to find out what people needed. Uh, we assumed that artists knew what the problems were and that they would have ideas if we just talked to them and we were right. Uh, my colleague, Britt Galpin, who's now the editor of Inuit Art Quarterly, is seated to my my right <laughs> in this picture, uh, and here we are at the second, the second uh, session, second round of community consultations in the first season, in the uh, first session in Nain. So we had gone back; we'd already been there once and done a lot of talking to people, and then we were on our way back again. And so the first time that we went to Labrador, we went to every community, uh, just got on the radio in the mornings when we went in and said, come on down if you're an artist, we want to talk to you about an opportunity. And people would come to the meetings and they would fold their arms and they would say, well, when are you going to write this report? And we were like, it's not a report, we don't know what it is. <laughs> and so uh, then people became a little bit more interested in it. We said we have money and we don't know what to do with it and we are here to... <laughs> 
ask you how you think we should spend money. And so then people become, you know, the, the change shifts, Inuit, are, Inuit and, and all indigenous peoples are so used to being researched on, but they're very, uh, very rarely said, what kind of a project would you like to do? And so they were like, we don't know. We've never been asked this before. And so we started from asking them what kinds of challenges they have. And I will note that a lot of them are not that different than what Dinah Anderson discovered in the 1980s. There wasn't really that many changes in 30 years. Um, access to materials, access to markets, the time to make things. Um, one of the things that they found a lot was the quality of materials were very poor. If you can imagine you're a seamstress and you're, you're just making it, you make a couple of pairs of slippers, you sell them, you get the material, you get enough money to buy a few more seal skins and some more hide, and then you make a few pairs. And so you're always in this kind of uh, make it and sell it and make it and sell it circuit. An artist said, you know, we don't have time to do something that's really ambitious. I can't make the thing to the best of my ability. There's no market for something that costs, you know, I don't make a $2,000 basket, I make $2,100 baskets. That's what uh, one of the most important basket makers in Labrador said to me, and I felt like crying on the spot. I was like, take my money. Um, and so um, we heard a lot of that from all of the communities. And so as we started talking to them, we realized that um, other things that the artist said was that they, had, they hadn't had a chance to show their work or see what other people were doing in the other communities in about 30 years. The Labrador Craft Producers Association is one of those volunteer organizations. They stopped functioning in the early 80s and they were the last ones to like do a group show. And so we thought, well, let's try to find an opportunity to get all the artists together. And uh, so the idea for the exhibition came out of that and at first it was a community exhibition. And in order to do it, we devised a way to get people to participate, in, to give them the materials they needed, and then also to uh, ensure that they would stay excited about the project. So we gave them a very long timeline in order to complete the works, and we invited them to come to, we came back again, this is on the second round again, we went to all the communities, we had these forums, and we said, um, if you didn't have, if money was no object, if you had a whole year to work on something, and if you didn't have to worry about market concerns, what would you make? best of your abilities, wildest part of your imagination, do whatever you want. And then we sat down with people and we said, what materials do you need to do this? And we uh, made lists. We compiled all of the things. We had requests from, I think, about 100 and 120 artists. And we compiled all of their things into like super orders. And then we got excellent quality materials at sort of discount prices because we bought in bulk for all these things. And then we... Uh, had all the materials shipped to Labrador. This is um, videographer Matthew Brulot, um, research assistant Camille Usher, and community, Inuit community liaison, liaison Lindsay Morehouse in 2015. Here we are in the distribution center, which is the back of a uh, Labrador tourism office, <laughs> like cutting up skins, being like, Inez means like half a blue skin, half a green skin, half a red skin, one rabbit tail. <laughs> rabbit tail? No, rabbit fur. Nobody uses rabbit tails. Um, <laughs> and while we were doing, like, that's, you don't get a lot of material out of a rabbit tail. Um, while we were doing this, we were also talking to the artists and conducting interviews. So here you see uh, sculptor Derek Pottle in his studio, Elder Gilbert Hay. He's here, you can't tell, but he's standing on a block of Labradorite about as big as I'm standing on uh, and telling us about the, his ambitious plans for carving. He didn't actually make it for us. It, it's probably going to cost like $50,000, but he was telling us about it. And uh, Echo Hinook, who's actually his granddaughter, and um, as an aside, when she was born, Gilbert uh, prophesied that she would become a great artist, and she just had her first animated film premiere at Imaginative last year, so she's on her way. Um, 
so while we were doing that, uh, our partners in the Nazi government also became very inspired to spur on work that had begun in the 1990s and had been left off. And so this is Billy Goche demonstrating. Billy uh, is a really famous Inuit artist. I think you have works from him here, although I could be wrong. Um, he is a really important sculptor, one of the best in Canada, in my opinion. And here he is giving a hand carving tools workshop to Labrador Inuit. There was also a group of artists from Labrador were sent um, to Matthew Nuginia's studio in Iqaluit. And I don't have a photo of it, but there was, a, ironically, I don't have a photo of the photo workshop. <laughs> I scrolled through my friend's blog for like an hour last night trying to find one. But we um, organized a project with Nunatsivut. We said, you know, we need documentation of all the work that's being created. Um, there are no photographers that work commercially or professionally or even, or you know, except for artistic photographers and communities. But um, what we did is we partnered with them to identify an Inuit photographer who was very keen in each community. And then we brought in uh, Justin Wanicott, who's a professional art photographer from Ottawa. And he gave them a um, art photography workshop, but he also, we bought them all a simple backdrop and lighting kit so that they could continue their artistic practice and become photographers afterwards. And I think all of them are currently working as photographers in their community. And then uh, independent of this project, Nunatsivit saw the value in that and they brought in someone else to do a Photoshop workshop and someone else to do a landscape workshop. So it's been this thing that has like really revitalized what's happening in the community. Um, at the same time, because we thought, well, we're going to bring in all of these artists who participate in the show. We gave them a year to work with their materials, and then we were going to come back and collect everything. And uh, so we thought, well, we might as well do an arts, an arts conference as well. So we organized with ArtsNL the province's first ever Indigenous Arts Conference. Uh, on the left, filmmaker Asiniuk demonstrates storyboarding techniques with her NFB producer, Kat. And on the right, Rowena House, who used to be the director of the Nunavut Arts, Crafts, Arts and Crafts Council, and now she's um, working in Labrador. Uh, she was presenting on sustainable practices in the Arctic for artists and craftspeople. So we had a big opening. That's Pat Feely in the front. We brought in, because of, there was no reason to have a big opening in Labrador and then not bring in collectors and dealers and art historians. You know, it's a bit of a, if a, well, trees don't really fall in the forest in Labrador where there are trees that are like this big. <laughs> so you wouldn't hear them anyway, uh, <laughs> like this big. But, uh, you know, it was, it was that kind of thing where we were like, if we can't make this splash and have it only happen inside of Labrador, that doesn't address the issue. And so we brought uh, Christine Lalonde from the National Gallery. We brought private collectors as well as uh, institutional collectors. And we, um, there are no exhibition venues in Labrador. It's one um, cultural center, but it doesn't have a, it's only got a little tiny um, not permanent space, and their shows are organized from Newfoundland, so they show Newfoundland art in the Labrador space, mostly. And so uh, we took over the Kinsman Center, which is usually um, like a darts club, <laughs> and we borrowed the pipe and drape from, I think we rented it from the place that rents it to the local high school, so we had this blue, and we thought we were getting black, and then they were like, oh, we actually gave that to the high school, so then we had to use this royal blue color. I'm like, eh, it still worked out. We built we had someone build temporary walls for us and we put up an exhibition. Um, that exhibition, we had the artists, if they wanted to sell their work, um, we said, you'll get 100% of the sales, we don't take any cut of it. Um, you just decide, you mark a price, and then we had Pat uh, Feely from Feely Fine Arts, actually, she would, she would we, asked, we told the artist to say their minimum price, and then Pat went through and decided if the minimum price was appropriate or if it should be raised. And over the course of this, this was only up for five days, not even really, it was like four and a half days, we did $10,000 in sales in Labrador. Um, here we are uh, doing the installation of Elder Nellie Winter's work. Um, 
I want to put up a picture. There's a, there's a photo of Nellie and my grandmother going to a craft sale in Ottawa together in the 1960s, which is it's on my Facebook page if you search for me. Don't, don't do that. Um, <laughs> here's Nellie with her granddaughter, Roxanne Nokasak, who also was involved in the exhibition. Um, and then what we did with the artists is we said, you can sell the work if you sell it, but um, in this particular circumstance, we want to have an agreement with the buyers and the artists that if the piece gets selected to go into a nationally touring exhibition, that you have to loan it to us for a couple of years. And so artists and collectors were all very generous with that. And so from this, we created a nationally touring exhibition, which opened at uh, the Rooms Provincial Art Gallery on October 7th of 2016. And this show um, contained about 25 works from that community exhibition on loan from either artists or the people that bought them and was joined uh, with works from collections from across Canada, from private and public collections, totaling 87 works with 46 artists. So this is the show that was at the rooms. And now I'm just going to very quickly give you a bit of a showcase as we go through the end, some of the works that were included in the exhibition. Um, the code on the left is uh, made by my grandmother, Susanna Igliordi, who I was just mentioning. Um, it's not a child's coat, she's just a very tiny woman. I did not inherit that from her. Um, my, my friend Sophie Pomick's coat is on the, on the far side. My new friend Sophie Pomick's coat is on the far side. She is also, that is also not a child's coat. She's also just a very tiny person. And in the middle, what's interesting is that the two side coats are um, sort of contemporary cuts, but they're done in very traditional ways. One is seal skin and one is um, that style of duffel coat that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And then in the middle, we have the traditional style coat and a Mountie, but it's made by uh, Chantal Anderson. And she wove all that fabric herself. She, wove, she did a uh, textile program, wove the fabric, wove even the bands, and then sewed this together and uh, just had it in her closet at home. <laughs> this is a work by Michael Massey, grandfather, I have something to tell you. I feel like, how am I doing on time? You want me to like, do I need to go fast or slow is what I'm saying. Fastest? Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, works by Shirley Morehouse, Textile Works. Uh, Ryan Rice has curated Shirley into uh, several shows. Here's another one of her pieces. She works in wall hanging, which some of you will be very familiar, is a common Inuit form of art, but Shirley does something very distinct. She uses um, found objects and pieces that are offcuts from sewing mittens and so on, and she turns them into sort of found material uh, mixed media pieces. This is a teeny tiny, it's only about this big, it is done with all the same color thread, just going in different directions. It's by Doris Saunders, who is uh, probably one of the most incredible embroidered works that I've ever seen in my life. Um, she's so good that one time she had an exhibition of her work, and she had sent it, and the installer had installed it all inside out, and she was mortified. She was like, it's all backwards. And the installer was like, it's perfect. Like, it looks exactly the same on the front as on the back. Uh, basket by Garmo Rich, who I'd mentioned. We actually commissioned Garmo to do a really big basket for the show. She was the one that said she did 20 small baskets instead of one big basket. Um, so we, we reversed that for her. Uh, photographs by the first photographer in uh, Labrador's history, James Anderson. You can see on, we did a big installation. We, we had these digitally um, uh, compressed so that you could see the image and the slide frame as well because as you'll see, many of his slides he had to send away from Makovic to places in the United States in order to get his um, images processed and sent back. And he has all these great handwritten things about uh, what's happening in, in each of the images. So we did an installation of um, 50 grids of 25 by 25, but in the touring show, there's just four. Here's a close-up of that one, this beautiful composition. 
Uh, Maria Mirkaratskik's amazing all red sealskin uh, mittens, my father's pattern. Emily Flowers, Nuli Ayuk. Elias Semiak. Uh, Chris Sampson is a photographer. He's one of the rare Inuit photographers that I've seen do architectural photography. It's very interesting work. Uh, Barry Pottle is another photographer who got his start in uh, journalistic photography and moved into artistic photography. This is, I love this piece. Um, Michelle Bakey, who started out in university studying um, the science of ophthalmology and then became really interested. And I, I will draw your attention to the fact that this piece was made in 1998, so it's not just like a Photoshop filter that she was able to put on and, and create this piece. Um, Marky Gloliorti, my brother, this is the piece from the earlier slide. I'll, no, I'm kidding. I'll go. <laughs> uh, this is Mark's piece. Um, it is a transfer onto canvas of looking out at our uncle's backyard in Hopedale. Uh, oh, sorry. One of Mark's works from the Kayate series, uh, works on Plexi. Sculptures by Billy Goche, who was earlier seen in that sculpture workshop. He's an artist who puts an incredible amount of detail in his work. And this piece, I don't know if you can see it from the slides, but you can see tears running down the face that are carved into this sculpture. It's amazing. Um, photographer Ryan Williams, who had never shown before, submitted these photos to the exhibition and is now uh, he was, last I saw, he was on the cover of magazine. He was also on the back inside cover of Inuit Art Quarterly recently. Um, Jenny Williams, whose Naliuk Night series is, it's terrifying, first of all. This is an Inuit tradition that happens um, in Nunatsivut as well as in Greenland, where demons chase you around on old Christmas Eve. <laughs> You can, you can Google that. <laughs> Inez Shywak, who made a video piece for the exhibition. Inez is a really incredible sealskin seamstress, but she also works in uh, digital storytelling and has been moving into uh, video art. Um, some of the works in the exhibition dealt with some really difficult themes. This is David A. Ningyuk's uh, residential school nightmare. This piece is uh, it's, it's really powerful in person. The photos don't do it justice because the polish on it is so incredible, but um, it's something. Uh, also looking at that, Jason Sikuak's work, Sacrilege, talking about contact between, and the battle between uh, his Tulagak spirit and Christian Christianity. Um, and then I'll say that the catalog has been produced in three languages. It is in English, French, and Inuktitu. Um, the English one came out in the winter, the French one came out in the summer, and the Inuktitut version will be out this fall. We've also got two exhibition uh, websites, michnunatsiavut.org and, um, and sakiayak.com. <laughs> and I'll just say to end, um, in closing, the, the exhibition processes here have not only informed my work as a curator and a scholar, but they've also changed who I am as a person and how I understand my responsibilities to other Inuit from my region and Inuit throughout all of the, what is now the Canadian um, Arctic and the circumpolar context. Um, what's happened since Sakiayuk is that uh, the problem that we set out to change in terms of reaching other audiences, well, first of all, all of you here tonight now know about Nonazi but artists. Um, I've been contacted by a lot of galleries asking for contact information for particular artists. I have um, helped to facilitate, along with a big group of people, uh, both private and public commissions of work that has just happened in the last year and a half. Um, one of the artists who had been working, one of the artists has taken a leave from his job in Postville and he's now working on a jewelry program. He's, uh, he's moved to Ontario with his whole family and he's taking jewelry in, in school. 
he'd never sold a work before, and then he sold all of his works in the show. Um, the Inuit Art Quarterly did a full issue on Nanatsevut. It was the first one that ever sold out, and now uh, Nanatsevut artists have been included in every issue since then, since 2015. So I, we're starting to see some really exciting things happen from the exhibition, and I just want to end um, with a quick video that, um, I know you're not supposed to let someone else have the last word, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna let the artists have the last word in my presentation. I never get tired of that. I can, if I wouldn't get sleepy, I can sew on night and day. <laughs> Back in the day when we were growing up, if you wanted a toy, there was no toys to buy, or you didn't have money to buy them, so if you wanted something, you made something. I'm lucky enough that uh, for the most part, I, I just, I get to create whatever it is I feel like, so um, and that's the best part of the job, just doing whatever it is I want. So I think for me, it's people understanding um, the beauty that's in Labrador. I think that's important for me to sort of try and portray, whether that's in people or whether that's in land. I've heard so much about the north is really barren, and that's really not the case at all. Well, I learned to carve from uh, mostly watching uh, uh, family members carve. I uh, started with my dad. Um, we we used to do some uh, wood carvings of you know just little kayaks and. He came home one day with stone and tools, and we went down from there. And like in Nunatsu, we have life skills classes, so it was always the boys went with the man, and then the girls went with the woman, and we did sewing. So uh, we've like I sold different materials, but silkskin it seems to be the thing that I want to keep doing, and people seem to be interested in wanting to buy. Like I said earlier, I started uh, working just in, in wood first, then I graduated to antler. Then I graduated into ivy, then I graduated into soapstone, then to marble, then to every other type of stone you can name on the face of the earth. So <laughs> that includes granite. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's not so much doing the craft, but more coming over to Nan's and spending time with her, because I come over mostly every day. And it's just to talk with Nan and tell stories about her past and just while we're talking, make a pair of slippers or make a doll, you know, it's very relaxing. I kind of like to um, do things that I haven't seen before. Yeah. This is important, you know, like getting our word, our work out, you know, to show that these are the experiences that created the people who we are today. You know, like these are the experiences that affected our, our parents, our grandparents our aunts and uncles, our cousins, our nieces, our nephews. These are the situations that made me the person that I am today and the people that they are today and why they are creating what they are today or if they're not creating. You try and do your best all the time. For everything I do, I always try and put most energy and the best I can for each piece sort of thing. If I'm not satisfied, it's not going outside the door. It doesn't travel. And art is a great way to get people to kind of open, open up and start asking questions about Inuit and what it means to be Inuit. Uh, that's it, thank you all for coming out tonight. Taima, welcome Thank you, Heather. We have a little bit of time for questions. If anyone has a question, just raise your hands, we'll run the mic over to you. That was an amazing talk. Thank you, Heather. Marie-Josée Terrien, uh, I had the chance to see both exhibitions in Quebec City and uh, in, 
Newfoundland, if you remember, was probably the biggest uh, opening they ever had. It actually was. Yeah, it was, it was their <laughs> it was biggest a opening. big, big party. <laughs> and, and thank you, because you are really making a difference. I'm lucky to have known or been in contact with one of the artists. I have a question that is maybe a, on the side, but there are, we're starting to see now a heritage center or a cultural center, and there's one that's been built in Maine, I believe. Mm. And do you think that, because I know that because of the opening of the Northern Passage, uh, there is much more being available for tourists now. And, you know, the, the main center is not open yet. Is it, is it open or it will? It, no, is there a place for exhibition room there? <laughs> is there a place for exhibition room and for, you know, for... Yeah, so the, the cultural center is Alushuak. Uh, it's very exciting. Alushuak is, um, it refers to the footprint of traditional sod houses. So it's, it's this beautiful building. It's by the same designer that, uh, same architect that designed the Fogo Island residencies and hotel. And so it's a really gorgeous space, but I've, I've seen the footprint. I haven't actually been inside yet because they've been delayed in construction, but I, I don't think there's much of a temporary exhibition space. And in Labrador, like, we don't even really have coffee shops that you can put your work up in. You know, it's, a real, um, it's a real challenge for artists because there, there are no art supply stores. Everything needs to be shipped in and uh, no venues to show your work, and so everything needs to be shipped out. And so it's a constant state of like, you know, can you afford the shipping from somewhere in the Arctic, and do you actually have the skills to pack something that's complicated? I mean, that's a big service that cooperatives do in the Arctic is have um, people carefully ship and pack, you know, all these sculptures with little delicate pieces and so on, and so um, th there's still an issue, but I, I hear what you're saying about how tourism may be increasing, and that might become more helpful. Um, it certainly would be, um, you know, kind of ecotourism has been growing in Labrador, but since we signed our land claims agreement, we now have uh, this really amazing national park. It's right at the top, the tip of Labrador, and it kind of connects to the top of where the Hudson's Bay connects to. And um, it's just one of the most beautiful, amazing places on earth, but the camp, because the weather is so harsh and there's so many polar bears, the camp's only open for like four weeks out of the year. And so they just like set it up and do this big luxury ecotourism thing and then they take it all down again. So I don't know. I don't know if we're gonna see tourism increase greatly in the next couple of years. But I have, for example, um, aside from people personally collecting the work and working with artists and, and doing commissions, there have also been, like the Canadian Guild of Crafts is really interested now in doing an all Nunatsiavut show and they just moved buildings to a bigger space and I was walking by the street and I was like, that's a Heather Campbell, you know? And so I've been seeing, I've been seeing more of the work just in the general cultural context. It's been really great. Thank you. Hi, Heather. I was just wondering if, um uh, how these shows kind of relate to your previous work with something like Decolonize Me? Uh, well, I mean, I think that um, that was a show that was um, a show about decolonization, obviously, and through arts. And I think that these are really, uh, really Inuit-focused projects that are much more about centering community and looking at what is uh, distinct and specific and to be celebrated about in Inuit art rather than... You know, a lot of my scholarly practice is about pushing against uh, and in reaction to and being resistant. And I'm, uh, I'm really interested in also uh, doing what is productive for artists, which is sometimes just to hold them up and give them a platform and let them get out there. So I, I think that's a good question and it's a little bit different and maybe not what I'll do forever, but it just seems like that's the urgency in my work right now. Thank you, not for me.
There's one back there, Kathleen, behind you. These lights are still very bright. <laughs> Thanks so much for that presentation. I just learned so much. Uh, it's a really basic question. Is that show going to tour beyond Quebec City? And uh, has it closed? And can we still see it? Or it is. They think it'll be. The, it's a permanent exhibition. Oh, so they cool. built. It's like. One, it's basically like a big circular case with some lines in it. It's a really beautiful space. Um, and uh, it was custom designed for that exhibition. So it's not meant to tour, but it should be up for, I mean, the last time that the permanent exhibition was up, it was there for 10 years. And so I, they've told me they suspect it'll be there at least seven or eight. It's kind of purpose-built. The museum is gorgeous. If you get a chance to go, all of the collections are really great. And they do this, it was beautiful narrative and the architecture doesn't compete with the art. It's, it's a really nice building. Thank you. Thanks. Hello. Hi. I was wondering um, if you had any pushback in contemporary Inuit art when people don't think that it looks like Inuit art. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if people are saying things behind my back and not to my face about <laughs> what, they, what they think about it. Um, I have, I've definitely had people comment on, <laughs> I mean, it's a possibility. Um, I've definitely had people comment to me that it's, uh, and it depends on um, who it is that I'm talking to, but there is, there is, there's been a, you know, a 50 year history of Inuit art largely looking like sculptures and then prints and then drawings. And so uh, if you were only exposed to, and that's, that's not how Inuit art has looked in the Arctic for the last 50 years. Inuit artists do not just make these things. Those are just the three things that have been really popular on the Southern Canadian Inuit art market. You know, um, Peter Pitsilek was taking photos in the 1930s and Jimmy Manning and uh, James Anderson, as I showed, you know, there are artists doing all kinds of things, especially sewing. Sewing and basketry, that's the kind of thing, uh, like sealskin clothing, that kind of thing, very, very popular in the north. And now there's a huge Inuit market for Inuit things like that. But uh, here in the south, you know, it, it has been sculptures and prints and drawings because those are the fine art mediums and they end up in art museums. And so I think that when people see a lot of craft in contemporary spaces, um, that there is sometimes a little bit of a, uh, a pushback on that. But for the most part, people have been hugely receptive. Uh, like you were saying, the opening of Sakiayak was the greatest attended opening in the room's history. They had 800 attendants that night. That's actually a fact. And um, we've had really great numbers reporting from everywhere else. Inuit art is, I think, very popular in the Canadian context. I think that people uh, have a great fondness for it over a long period of time, and it may be hasn't been as accepted by the contemporary art world as um, other forms of indigenous art in Canada. But I, I think that with this kind of breaking apart and inserting video and film and uh, photography and painting and all these other mediums, that we're starting to push at some of those cracks and to uh, be more expansive. And it's not just Nunasivut. I mean, there are artists from Nunavut and Nunavik and the Northwest Territories and all around the circumpolar world that are doing really, really exciting things now. And it's becoming less and less of a, a media-specific practice so much as a, an Inuit practice. Thank you for your question. Hi, Heather. Um, I have a question about um, you know, your expertise. You're involved in quite a number of projects. Can you speak a little bit about uh, the Winnipeg Art Gallery and the expansion of the new Inuit uh, galleries and uh, what we can expect to see in that space? Sure. I just want to acknowledge that Barry Ace and Ryan Rice were the two people that invited me to the founding, what would become the founding meeting of the 
Aboriginal Curatorial Collective, and they have been mentors of mine. Um, now I'm going to start to cry for 13 years, and uh, now I have to like not look at Barry. Um, and so uh, I just want to, before we start, uh, before I answer your question, I just want to acknowledge how important you have been to my formative career. I used to. Um, like write angry emails and then I would send them to Barry and be like, can I publish this? And he would say, no, take it down. <laughs> Tone it, change it, change the wording a little bit and, and then publish your angry email. Um, what was the question? <laughs> like, Talking about the uh, Winnipeg. Uh, oh, the Winnipeg Art Gallery, yeah. Um, so the Winnipeg Art Gallery is building an expansion. They have um, the country's, maybe the world's largest collection of Inuit art. And they've also recently been loaned on long-term the Nunavut government collection of Inuit art because uh, Nunavut does not have a um, territorial cultural center as yet. And so the Winnipeg Art Gallery is accepting that collection to display it, but also to catalog it because it has never been cataloged. It's just like it's been in offices and buildings and so on. So it's a really important collection. And together, it's you know thousands of works. And so the Inuit Art Center is being built to house that collection, but to go beyond that and to, um, it's got this huge new, building, um, huge new building that's going to be built on. If you're familiar with Winnipeg, it's where the old studios was. They've torn the old studios down and they're building this uh, new six-story expansion. I think it's like 90,000 square feet of exhibition space and there'll be um, food and all kinds of stuff inside. And what um, I've been doing, not only in my role as the guest curator, but also I am uh, co-chair of the Indigenous Advisory Circle with Dr. Julie Negum, who is cross-appointed at the WAG in UW. And we have been working with a really amazing team of Inuit and First Nations and Métis people from Manitoba, as well as some national advisors on um, saying, you know, you can't build a fully Indigenous institution in, or you know, like a, a piece of an institution in 2017 and not consider from the very beginning how you are going to uh, consider more than just the art in that space. And they're really moving towards, I think, trying to um, decolonize and indigenize their institution. And so we're looking at the institution in terms of governance and board makeup and um, who's going to staff it and who's going to be frontline in the institution, you know, um, how will you pay and what will the circumstances be? But also, um, what kind of exhibitions are gonna be in that space? And so I think that, so I've, the first thing I did when I accepted the guest curator position is I said, I, I don't wanna do this alone. I, I wanna work with um, emerging Inuit curators. And so we formed a team that is uh, myself from Nunatsiavut, uh, Asiniuk, who was on the film, that's when I first met her, um, Asiniuk from Nunavik, uh, Krista Zawadzke from Nunavut, currently works for the Nunavut government managing their collections, and uh, Jade Nasagalawak Carpenter from the Northwest Territories. So together we actually span the entire uh, Canadian Arctic region and we both live in the, we're both urban Inuit and uh, Northern Inuit. And we don't have a, we're still working on the exhibition right now, it opens in a couple of years, but we have decided that it will include every medium, every generation, uh, and be uh, really forward-looking. Futurity is gonna be the theme of the new Inuit Art Center. So I, I'm, I'm over the moon excited about it. But I'm so excited about this stuff too. Like, I'm <laughs> excited about everything. <laughs> we are at the time when we're Great. officially supposed to end, but we have two more questions. So if anyone has to be somewhere, feel free to sneak out. But maybe we can do two fast sure. questions. With the, um, the advent of the internet, uh, introducing the world, the digital world, to your communities. Mm -hmm. uh, are we seeing uh, new cross-cultural influences in the art emerging? 
Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I would argue that there have always been cross-cultural influences in the art, but that we haven't got to see them as much. You know, Tom Hill uh, wrote an essay in which he talked about um, rescuing a sculpture from the basement of the National Gallery that was a bust of Elvis in like 1950. And so, that, but he like recovered a work that had gone into the basement and was not meant to be shown. Um, so I think that, you know, influence has always been there. An artist like Uvalu Tanili has been uh, drawing like football, uh, sculpting football players and ballerinas and the, you know, high heel shoes and things that she's been seeing on television from the 1980s onward. But certainly the internet is having a big impact. Um, I would say, especially on the way that Inuit sell to each other. There is a Facebook group called Iqaluit Auction Bids, for example, where artists can put up a pair of kamik or uh, like a parka or a children's parka, and people will bid on it. And it's, so instead of having a you know an artist who has to set their own price and then uh, and then get whatever they want, they actually not not unlike the show, they set their minimum price, and then people, if they want to bid, the prices go higher. And so before a comic artist sealskin boots, and before maybe you'd see them go for four or five hundred dollars, and now I've seen really beautiful pairs go for eight nine. $1,000, $1,200, and that's from other Inuit. We have government workers now, we have our own government, so we have people that are working in all of the departments, and we are, we are generating wealth in a way that we, uh, there was definitely a dip at one period, and so now as uh, people like myself, you know, I'm, I'm like covered in jewelry by artists that I know and I'm trying to support, and so I think a lot of Inuit, they want to uh, support seal skin and other products, and so you're seeing people buying things and circulating on the internet that way, in a way that would not have been previously possible before. And the internet still is not really good in the Arctic, but we keep getting promised that it's gonna get better and better. So I think that will only increase and grow. Thank you for your question. Okay, the last one? Yeah, one last one. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, my only exposure previously to Inuit art was, uh, my aunt was a collector. Uh, oh. Um, but uh, your brother's work really resonates uh, with me. How would you classify his work? Like the style, is that, is that, you know, it doesn't look very traditional or is it traditional? Well, here's the thing about Labrador Inuit artists and other artists, other Inuit artists that um, did not have cooperatives in their communities is that there's actually a lot of Labrador Inuit who end up going to art school because they really want to pursue an artistic career but there have not, in recent years, been a lot of opportunities for them to do that. And so Mark went to NASCAD. We actually went to NASCAD together. Um, Heather Campbell went to school in Stephenville. Uh, Michael Massey took metalwork. Um, I don't know if I showed a lot of his, I showed his sculptural work, but he also makes these beautiful hollowware teapots and so on. And so this is where I, I think a lot of Mark's influences. When I look at it, I see like a, a very NASCAD school of painting kind of influence on his work. Um, and I think that that is, uh, it's something that's a little bit unique to Labrador Inuit artists and kind of an interesting thing. There's an article in Inuit Art Quarterly called In the Absence of the Cooperative from an issue in 2015. Uh, and you can only find it online because that's the one that sold out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I encourage you to look into it. It's fascinating. I agree. Heather, thank you so, so much. Thank and, you all. Um, I hope we'll have a chance to hear from you again. You're doing incredible, incredible work. Thank Back you. Thank you. Thank you.